want a bit of the quiet life. I want a bit of self-indulgence. If there is reading, give me all of it. Join the show on the Microbrew Radio. Listen to Jim, Wendy, and Emily. Join in the conversation. I want to hear it. I want to read it. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Shelf Indulgence. It's myself, Jim, and as usual, accompanied by the lovely Wendy. Hello, everybody. And we are tonight on the second week of historical fiction. Uh, But before we go into historical fiction and wander down that path too far, let's take our usual meander into poetry corner so uh, now wendy i've got something um that i've brought with me on reflection of a funeral that i attended yesterday um it's a poem called the clock of life i'm not actually sure who it's by but this poem my granddad when he was at work years and years ago he uh, had to clean out the locker of one of his employees who passed away and he found this poem in the inside of this guy's locker um photocopied and pinned up inside and it's been a bit of a a family not joke but a family thing to like to to refer to it um so i'm going to read that for you it's called the clock of life the clock of life is wound but once and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at a late or early hour now is the only time you own live love toil with a will place no faith in tomorrow the clock may then be still. Mm. You can see why people would choose that at the, the uh, commemoration of somebody passing, can't you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, something that the um, the celebrant said yesterday at the funeral, and he said, you know, when you go from today, don't tell people you've been to a funeral. Been, say you've been to celebrate someone's life. Yeah, yeah. And I think, for me, the Clock of Life poem, although, yes, is often associated with people passing, but it's also that reminder to live now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you don't know when your time's up. So keep it, making the funny, most of you know, Jim, I was talking to a celebrant yesterday who, who I, I network with, <laughs> and um, we were having this discussion about this sort of modern trend for um, perfect cremations or simple cremations where literally people are just taken cremated and then their ashes are just deposited with the family and there's no ceremony or anything and one of the things we were talking about was the importance actually of funerals not from the person who's passed away point of view but from the mourner's point of view because for a lot of people they need an opportunity to acknowledge that passing and it's a part of the closure process isn't it Certainly, absolutely, and you know, don't get me wrong. I, I I was thinking on this the other day because you know a relative was talking to me about the expense of funerals and how they are they are a very very expensive thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and is, and is it right that it's so expensive to be buried or to be cremated or to? Mm. You know, should it be that expensive? And and ultimately, this new trend, the simple funeral, well, you're right. The the actual, the process of saying goodbye, the celebration of someone's life, that ritual is important. Yeah, it is. Now, now whether, whether the body is there or not, where that ritual takes place, that I say, would say is in question. Mm. You know, if it's more cost effective for, you know, when I go, 
it's more cost effective for me to be taken and dealt with in a clinical, simple manner. But then there's a celebration held in the local where all my mates get together and have a a, a ceremony that's led by someone to celebrate that life. Mm. Then that's just as valuable, maybe. Yeah. I suppose it really depends on where you stand on mortal remains. Yes, I think that's absolutely it. But I do think, I think that for lots of people, it did occur to me while I was having this conversation, that for lots of people, their first exposure to poetry is actually at funerals. Yeah. Yeah. People will pick something that means something to them or meant something to the person who's gone. Um, And and for a lot of people, that might be their first experience of hearing poetry read. Or certainly poetry that stays with you. Mm. Yeah. You know, um my my uh family were having a conversation the other night about which songs they'd want at the funeral and um you know ever so cheerful and um my dad was saying well you know the old rugged cross because mm. family so many of our family have had that at their ceremony yes yes yeah like well if that don't get you crying nothing will yeah absolutely absolutely and you know there are there are certain songs that once once you've been to a funeral and a, a certain song or a poem that then will always have that resonance of that occasion for you and therefore will always be imbued with a special meaning and significance. I think that's one of the things for me that stands out about poetry, that the actual lyrical nature of what it is and that, that sort of melodic connection to people um, very often means that they're used, poems are used at really important times in people's lives um and it, they are something that you remember because not not necessarily of the poem but actually of the occasion that that it's connected to oh yeah um and i've got a um a poem uh or I'm got, i've got a verse of a poem i'm not going to read the whole thing because it is a bit of a tome but um i'm going to read a verse of um one of my favorites um and of course it's got an agatha christie connection it would have wouldn't it um but it's the poem that is mentioned in her book the mirror crack from side to side and the poem that um that the story is based around or or the vehicle that it uses is the poem called the lady of shalott um by alfred tennyson um and the verse i'm going to read is is actually the the one that the book title is taken from so she left the web she left the womb she left she made three paces through the room. She saw the water flower bloom. She saw the helmet and the plume. She looked down to Camelot, out flew the web and floated wide. The mirror cracked from side to side. The curse has come upon me, cried the Lady of Shalott. Um, it's an incredibly powerful verse. If you read yeah. the whole poem, it's incredibly powerful um but agatha christie used that as a vehicle to describe the emotion um that she saw uh or, or that um that the players saw through one of her plots through one of the murders that started one of her plots um and it's been a favorite i i must have read that when i was 13 i think um 13 14 and um and i had to go and find the whole poem and it's been one of my favorites ever since Fabulous. And again, you know, that significance that's attached because of a certain resonance with you for a, for a book that's, you know, meaningful for you. 
Right. Well, that was a lovely meander down poetry corner. Um, so tell me, you've been reveling still with CJ Sansom. I certainly have, yeah. You and Matthew Shardlake have been dealing with the great progress. We have. And and wh- what's happened? Where where are we? So um so the story uh, essentially is uh, one of of political intrigue, which when you read the Matthew Shardlake series, um you realise what a dangerous time it was to live in the Tudor period, um and the level of political intrigue and manipulation that went on and actually how dangerous it was and in the second part of this book you really get a sense of that um and what i love about the uh, about reading this is that it's based on the historical uh, situation that there had been an uprising in tudor times that uh, had been overthrown um and the king who was being consistently put under pressure because of the decisions he was making um needed to needed to display a show of strength and so did this great progress through the country up to yorkshire uh to york and um who really used it it was a celebration but it was thinly disguised as as this show of power and about the intrigue that sat around this so at at the center of this novel sits a murder of a master glazier Uh, and if you think about this at the time um people most people didn't have glass in windows because it was such a rare and expensive commodity that only the very wealthy had glazed windows and so you had this master craftsman who used to do this this work usually on big cathedrals and big manor houses and stuff and um and he's murdered and this happens during this great progress and and so because matthew shardlake and his his henchman barack his uh his support his sidekick barack is um el barack is uh is around and about um they start to investigate this this death um and what what uh cj sansom is absolutely masterful at is weaving a web of finely spun threads that ultimately all join up at the end and it's just his writing style for me is head and shoulders above modern stuff you know the sort of modern stuff that's written in the first person and is very immediate and you don't have to think too much about but the layers in his writing uh, in terms of the way he writes the psychology of power the way he writes um he brings to life the tudor times there's a, there's a, a passage in this book that describes um henry the and and it dis- by which time he's actually quite he, he was a very very athletic very charismatic young king but at this point in his life he's sort of middle aged and and he's lost a lot of that athleticism he's huge he's put massive amounts of weight on he did not age well no he didn't and of course as a result of that he has ulcerated legs 
um because of of uh, his health is so poor probably nowadays you would say probably diabetic you would think and so um and so he's he's his health is actually quite quite poor oh, and, and, and suffered massively from what you'd consider rich man's diseases oh god absolutely you know he he would be it would be a yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. Everything you can get from excess. Yes, yeah. And 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 this book pulls no punches about that. And there's one passage um that where um Matthew Shardlake has to go and talk to him about something. He has to go and present a case and, and ask him uh, ask him to make a decision about something. And the description of how Matthew has to stand and negotiate with somebody while the stench of the ulceration in his legs is permeating his nose and making him feel nauseous is just phenomenal. And you are there. You you are there in this room where the king is holding court and and actually, you know, all of the things that you attribute to, to royalty turned on their head in that scene and you you realize what a difficult time it was and um how health was a real was a real struggle and how his suffering with those medical conditions actually was probably contributing to some of the worst decisions he made because he wasn't feeling in a a, a good enough state to make a decent decision and it just honestly for me Jim it just brings that period of history to life it's incredibly rich in terms of the layers but it, it's also very stark in terms of of what it was like to live during that time um and it's just a phenomenal read and even if you're not a history buff it's terribly easy to get drawn into his stories because he's such a wonderful storyteller but the evocative nature of what he writes about is just I, I would struggle to find an equal, I think, to him. I absolutely love his writing. Superb. So in terms of <clears throat> CJ Sansom and uh his body of work, is the Shard Lake series the best place to start? Have you read other stuff by I him? have read I have read his other stuff. Most of his other stuff is good. Um for me, his, um, his Shard-like series is head and shoulders above anything else that he's written. Um, and and I think that uh, I've read the whole series. And um, and for me, and I didn't realise this until I reread this book, but for me, Sovereign is, is the one that stands out from the series. I think there are five in the series. And um, for me, Sovereign is the best written. Um, and it is, you just feel as though you've been on the journey and you felt every bump in the road um, and every time he's had to you know struggle to go on an extra mile to reach uh, an inn for the night you just feel as though you've done this journey with him it's phenomenal writing and I absolutely love it so for those readers out there that might be considering picking up CJ Sampson would they start with Sovereign or would you recommend you know is it you can read Sovereign as a standalone, no problem. However, if you're going to read the series, you might want to go back and start with the first one, Dissolution, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I, they are standalone and you can read them. Um, you, you can start it anywhere uh, at any point in the series. But uh, but for me, 
um i was one of those people where i was bought the second one i was actually bought dark fire first and um and i read that and i just fell in love with it so i went back to the beginning and and read um dissolution and then um and then read i reread dark fire because it was so good um and then got got uh sovereign from somebody else for christmas I'd, it was on my wish list and so somebody had bought it me and i remember um being absolutely glued to this book throughout christmas day and and uh, boxing day one year and they're big books beyond a, no illusion you know them they're meaty reads and i think i finished it in three days and it was just it was one of those ones you just couldn't put down but um he's the the plot writing is masterful and and in a way lots of people compare him with hillary mantel and i've read her but I don't get on with that because I think she's too literary and I think she's too wordy. And for me, the detail takes away from the plot in her books. Um, although I did enjoy Wolf Hall, I have to say. But um, but for me, Sansom is is a fantastic. If you're a mystery reader, a murder mystery reader, then um, Sansom is a great place to start if you want to do some historical fiction. Superb. Well, thanks for the recommendation for everyone there. Now, do we... How about you then, Jim? How did you get on? Well, I'll tell you, before we get to Voice of the Fire, how about a little visit to What Has Granny Read? Oh, OK, then. So, um, last time we met, uh, she'd started another Peter Robinson, hadn't she? Yes. So that was Sleeping in the Ground, which is a DCI Banks. Yep. Then she went on to another Peter Robinson, uh, When the Music's Over, another DCI Banks. Yeah. And that's quite a meaty one compared to the other uh, DCI Banks ones. Mm -hmm. And then she's just read T.M. Logan's The Catch. Oh, now I'm just reading a T.M. Logan. I'm reading his uh, The Lies. uh, um, Lies. Mm. He's a phenomenal writer, you know, Jim. I've not read him, but Granny said he was very good. Uh, and the catch, uh, I mean, it, it says on the front cover, she says he's perfect. I know he's lying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He writes um, those great psychological twisty thrillers, um, and the, there are always brilliant plot twists in them. But his characterization is very, very good. And, of course, he writes page turners. So, you know, you can't, if you start one of his books, you can't put it down. And I think one of the ones that I've continually banged on about since we've been doing the show is, is a book called Trust Me. Yes. Now, Granny has read that. Yeah. Um. So that's why, I think that's why T.M. Logan was on her list of to reads from Trust Me. Um. So that's what Granny's read. Uh, she has been busy sewing and sorting, um, and as a reward for sorting, she, I've built her a new bookcase. So she, oh, wow. Yeah, she's now busily filling that. Um, but, yes, yeah, so there, there we are. That's what Granny has read this week. Um, so, on to Voice of the Fire. Now, I must apologise to yourself and to all our listeners. Yeah. I've not read as much this week as I normally would. I've had a rather... Uh, <sighs> full desk shall we say so i've not read as much as i normally would and i haven't finished voice of the fire however i do feel qualified to talk about it at some length 
Voice of the Fire is, I think, what makes this a book I love and will definitely 100% finish is it's it's a set of short stories. Mm. Mm. And I love a short story. Um, and there is there is a thread through them. Um, but I want I want to talk first at a bit of length about chapter one, Hobbs Hog. Now, last week we were talking about the fact that it's it's a challenging first chapter to read because of its linguistic style, because it's written in the dialect of this Neanderthal boy. Yeah. It has very few conjunctions. Um the grammatical structure that we would recognise as acceptable isn't there. There is a lack of punctuation in terms of question marks, and it is, you know, just full stops and commas mm. uh, with no conjunctions. So, and, and also where you think there might be a comma, there isn't. Um, so it makes the challenging read, but you know what? The more you read chapter one, the more you become fluent in his voice. Mm. Mm. and it took me a while to read it to really enjoy it and i would go back and re reread a paragraph just to make sure i got the meaning right yeah um but it is chapter one as a short story is a beautiful masterpiece of writing that makes you take a neanderthal boy who is simple and not quick-witted in the slightest. No, you know, he, he's a Neanderthal boy who doesn't understand the world mm. around him. And he's very simple and slightly brutish in his approach to certain things. But it makes you fall in love with him, in a way. Yeah. yeah. And also, you really empathise with him. Mm. And it's a love story because he falls in love. But like all the best short stories, there is a sting in the tail. Yeah, yeah. And that is that he is betrayed and brutally so. Mm. And I don't oh, do I do I give too much away now? I think I think I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone that might go and re way and read it. But it's really good, and people might be put off by the language, but it's worth it, Wendy. It's really yes. worth it yeah. because what you find is you find a beautiful story. And what I think really makes this stand out for me, and something you know we've discussed a lot on the show, is what gives us skin in the game and what makes a story relevant or meaningful for us is when it's about people's emotions and people's feelings. Yeah, yeah. And relationships. Mm. And what this story is about is about a young man who is lost in the world, whose relationships have fallen away, and he has been abandoned and isolated. Mm. And he meets somebody who is kind to him and who cares for him and who loves him and who brutally betrays him mm. in the worst of ways. And there's there's a scene where he is, he, I mean, he dies. You know, we, we know he dies yeah. by the end of the book. Because, yeah, you know, yeah no absolutely. One, no one's going to live 6,000 years. No, absolutely you know, right. Let's be honest, he's not going to make it 1,500 years to the next chapter. So <laughs> we know he dies, but he does meet an untimely end as a result of this betrayal. Right. And there is an element of uh, human sacrifice to the way that he goes. All right, okay. Um, and fire is a very significant part of this book. Voice of the Fire is its title. Mm. And fire is a very fire is 
very much a recurrent theme through the book. I was going to say, was that the link? I wondered whether that was the I, I link. Think, I think it is. It is the link, but also there are other links. Mm. With it being in Northampton, throughout Northampton's 6,000-year history, you know, in Chapter 2, we find ourselves journeying to Northampton with, um, you know, we're now moved forward 1,500 years to, you know, the the mere 2,500 BC. Um, and we've got a, a our main character is a woman who is a murderess and a conster. Mm. Uh, and we find that very quickly. But again, she heads to Northampton and she meets the current Hobman. Now, the Hobman is the cunning man, the wise man of Northampton. Right. And whereas um, protagonist in Chapter 1 falls victim to uh, human sacrifice by the Hobman, mm. so too... Do we then find that in chapter two, the Hobman is there, and this story of what the Hobman 1500 years before had done is now part of local lore and legend and myth. Mm. So, so there's more of a link than just the fire, because, you know, as people, what do we do as humans? We make sense of the world through stories. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly before science, before the Renaissance and before learning the way the world works, stories were how we assigned, you know, the rising of the sun and the setting of the moon and the coming of the seasons. And Mm. all of this, all this folklore comes out of that oral tradition of storytelling. And so for the incidents in chapter one to still be part of local folklore in chapter two 1500 years later actually isn't that surprising no no particularly considering that the happenings were focused around the local cunning man yes yeah who would be a very significant part of that village's um folklore Mm. Um, I think what I'm going to say, Wendy, is what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue alongside our other books to read the short stories of Voice of the Fire. Mm-hmm. And we could regularly, I mean, if you've no objection, we no, could no. have a short segment where we drop in and see where we are in Voice of the Fire in the 6,000-year journey. Mm. Um, because I think, it, 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 for me, what I've got from this book just in Chapter 1, I would encourage other readers to go and find. Mm. There is definitely something about this story that is quite meaningful and resonant. Yeah. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Absolutely, it does. I mean, I when you first talked about the first chapter, um, it, it became clear that, that um, the writing style will change as the book develops. And as it becomes clearer to, or as it becomes closer to the current day, the writing style will change because I would guess that if he's done the first chapter very much in the um, in the authentic dialogue of the time, he will continue to do that for subsequent chapters. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, and once you get into even by chapter two at two thousand five hundred BC, language has come a long way. Yes, yeah. 
that if I was to read you a short extract now, do you go as far south as Bridgen Valley? We may walk together there for safety, says she. She is travelling to her father, who is dying, and she tells me that he is a cunning man who comes from one who comes one summer long ago, up track from Bridgen Valley, past the Great North Woods, far as the land's edge, where the cold sea begins. He makes his children on a woman there, both boy and girl, takes boy away with him and leaves the girl behind. All the long winters pass. She does not see her father. He does not see her. Now he is dying. Bridging Valley comes my reply. Yes, that is in my way. There is a short path by the river we may take if you walk with walk after me. Mm. So you see already, although it's not modern English, it's a lot easier to read. It is, yeah, than that first chapter, yeah, definitely. And I would say, you know, the first chapter I was reading at about four times the speed. The second chapter I was reading about four times the speed of the first chapter easily. Yeah. Yeah. And not needing to reread it because although, although chapter one was hard work, it was worth it. Mm. And then chapter two is instantly a bit easier. And, you know, by chapter three, we're moving into uh, Anno Domini rather than being Yeah, sitting. Yeah, it's a bit of a breeze from that point on, I would guess. So at that point, we're already now, you know, moving on. And, you know, yeah. it, 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 it it radically, I mean, I, I have skipped ahead and read snippets from some of the future chapters because I was like, well, I need to have read a bit more for the show. Uh, to the point where, and what I found really interesting is the final chapter, and this is this is brilliant in my mind. So the final chapter starts with the author having finished writing the book. Right. So if I, if I may read to you the start of the final chapter, they're buying you. The last words of the previous chapter, written in grey light, stand there upon the monitor's dark stage beneath the help menus, help menu that's lettered upon the preceding arch. The cursor winks, a visible slow hand clap in the black deserted auditorium. The final act, no more impersonations, no more sleight of voice or period costume. The abandoned wigs and furs and frocks are swept away. Discarded mass and death husk faces are returned to property and hanging on their pegs. The grub-chewed skull of Francis Tresham dangles next to the wax imprint of John Clare, moon-browed and lantern-jawed. A cast of Nellie Shaw, the lips drawn back across her teeth in burning agony, bumps up against the papier-mâché cheek of Alfie Ruse, an unintended kiss. And, and we're now at this reflection back on the book. Yeah. So that, that in itself is quite an interesting device. Mm. You know, it's almost the breaking of the fourth wall in literary form. Yeah, yeah. Which is something I don't think I've ever seen. But I, I suppose, really, that's one of the things that we we have benefited from, from doing the show, that we've discovered some really unusual plot devices for the way that authors have chosen to write their stories and that it's it's like finding a gift isn't it even yeah. if it may not be your particular bag in terms of the way that author writes seeing a, an unusual device used in that way um is is intriguing and it just makes you want to carry on and and read a bit more doesn't it yeah 
Uh, certainly, I think, from my point of view, I've really enjoyed having an opportunity to read something different to yourself and for us to discuss yeah. each other's books. But equally, there is a part of me that really wants to know how you would feel about this. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you do ever get it on your reading panel, oh, I will, do, yes. I'll, please um, do let me know how you get on with it. We'll have a discussion, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let, let's let's fe- uh, visit a feature we've not featured for a while now. But what's caught your eye, Wendy? What what's out there in the literary world that's uh, well, taking your fancy? Well, the first thing that's caught my eye is actually I have a recommendation for Granny. All right. Um, I, I don't know whether she's ever read any Jeffrey Deaver, but Jeffrey Deaver is one of my favourite thriller writers. I think she has. Yes. Yeah, he's quite. Um, He's not an easy read, and some of the stuff that he does is quite graphic. Um, and I would remind people about books like the the Bone Collector and stuff like that. So that those are in this, the those are in his series um, of, of Lincoln Rhyme, who is this ex detective who, through an accident, has become a, a complete quadriplegic. And so, although his brain works, nothing else works, and he has to constantly receive medical attention um and so what he does is from a very um highly medical dependent environment solves crimes by sending out his sidekick who is a young woman who was training to be a police officer and she goes and does the forensic stuff at crime scenes and between them they solve the crimes and um and so they're they're really good. Um, but the reason this came across my radar again was because I was rereading Sovereign. I was having a look at the stuff that I was reading at the time when I first read Sovereign. Um, and I read my review of a book called The Vanished Man. Um, and The Vanished Man is probably, I would think, it's probably three or four books in, I would think, to the series. Certainly not the first. Um and the reason I loved this book was from the moment that you read the first chapter, it grabs you by the throat and hangs on and shakes the living daylights out of you and doesn't let you go until the last page. Sounds like a Stuart McBride. It's just one of those books. Um, and it begins in a, he, um, it begins in a, a music school in New York City. Um, and uh, a killer flees the scene of a murder and he locks himself in a classroom. And, of course, he's being chased, so he, he they think they have him cornered. Um, and they've got the room surrounded and uh, a scream, they hear a scream and they hear a gunshot. And so they pile into the room and, of course, it's completely empty. Mm. And that sets the scene for this elusive killer who you believe, particularly when you're about halfway through the book, you just believe that there is something paranormal about him because of his ability to escape capture. And it is um, it's a great read, really, really well written. And again, another page turner. Um, but I just I'm taking it as a challenge to um, expose Granny to some of my favourite reads that I've gone through, particularly my thriller reads, because I know she she's very appreciative of a good thriller. Oh, yes. um, and this really is one. Of, I think it's one of the best I've ever read. It is a really good book. So um, so I thought I would throw that 
into the pot tonight as something that's attracted my attention. Um, not from a current reading list, but actually something I would revisit again um, because uh, I have read it before and it was a fabulous read. Yeah, well, certainly in a similar vein, um, I have been uh, sorting through books um, and I came across, through my sorting, my vast collection of Wilbur Smiths. All right, yeah. Uh, and there was one that came up on Waterstones that I've not actually got. Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, Rage by Wilbur Smith. Um, so I've, I've popped that in my Waterstones basket. Um, and the other thing that caught my eye was I had an email today from Waterstones themselves. Other uh, reputable booksellers are available. But Waterstones have uh, just announced their children's book prize winners for 2023. Mm. So the overall winner and uh, the best book for the older readers category is The Cats We Meet Along the Way. Now, this book is a little bit unusual. It's written by Nadia Mikhail, um, and it's an apocalyptic novel. Now, apocalyptic novels are not generally known for their heartwarming qualities, are they? No, no, absolutely not. But this book is entirely that. This book is all about, um, it's tender, it's moving, it's full of hope and positivity, and it's about, well, actually, when life is about to disappear, mm. because, you know, basically the plot of the book is that we discover the world's about to end, and um, Aisha and her richly drawn family and friends decide they're going to take one final road trip across Malaysia. Right. Um, so that Aisha can reconnect with June her sister, that she hasn't seen for two years. Mm. And I don't know any more than that, apart from the fact that it's called The Cats We Meet Along the Way. So there may well be some cats. Um, but it's about what does truly matter. Yeah. And I think in a world where there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of noise at the moment that we all have to compete with and deal with, contend with, whether that noise is, well, it's mainly coming from the media, but whether that noise is about wars or vaccines or political intrigue or whatever it is, I think really focusing on what does really matter, what really matters to us, what are the actual essential things in life and the real valuable things. Yeah. It's a very good way to, to you know, to 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 think about ourselves. Mm. Um. <clears throat> Now, also, we had a be uh, best book for younger readers, Nura and the Immortal Palace by M.T. Khan, um, steeped in the magic of Muslim folklore. Uh, it's a debut novel, and it sends uh, the eponymous hero, Nura, into a stunningly imagined underground world where trickster jinns are in charge. Mm. And then the best illustrated book uh, winner, and I do love a good illustrated book for children. Mm-hmm. It's called Gretel the Wonder Mammoth. Oh, right. Um, this is by the author-illustrator of a previous, uh, Kim Hilliard, who has previously brought out Mabel and the Mountain. And it's a little story. It's, a, it's a, just a beautiful little story to encourage little ones to embrace their feelings. Um, because 
Gretel, the Wonder Mammoth, is the last Woolly Mammoth, and she's starting to get a bit nervous about her place in the herd. Oh. And do you know what? I think the yeah we live in a world now where the picture book market. I think people often under appreciate a picture book. Yes. Yeah. They think oh they're just, they're just for babies, but actually there's some really deep meanings in some of these picture books. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. And choosing some really good picture books for your youngsters, you know, it's it's a really good way of teaching them about the world. Yes. No, I'd absolutely agree with that. Lovely. So, that, so they're a that, good couple of um yeah. so can I throw one last one into the mix? Yes, then? by all means. Go on, Wendy. What else caught your eye? So my last one, you know that I'm a bit of a fan of um Alexander McCall Smith. Yes. So his latest release is a book called The Private Life of Spies. Now I wonder what attracted me to that title. I can't think, Wendy. I really can't think. So I just I just love his gentle humour in the way that he writes. But um, but this book really did attract me. And so um, let me just read you the blurb from the um, from the book cover. Um, During the Second World War, there was a rumour that German spies were landing by parachute in Britain dressed as nuns. Um, Conradin Muller was an unusual spy. He was recruited in Hamburg in June 1943 against his will and sent on his first and only mission in late September that year. He failed to send a single report back to Germany. And when the war came to an end in May 45, he fell to his knees and wept with relief. From a highly reluctant German spy who is drawn to an East Anglian nunnery as his only means of escape, to the strange tale of one of the Cambridge spy ring's adventures with a Russian dwarf. These are Alexander McCall Smith's intriguing and typically inventive stories from the world of espionage. What's not to like? Sounds fabulous. And I do love his gentle humour because... I always find when I, whenever I read an Alexander McCall Smith, I get to the end and I think, well, is that it? Because he writes so simply and yet you walk away from it and you think, well, that was an incidental little story. You know, nothing, nothing major happened. It sort of all went along in a, a sort of very easy sort of way. And then for the next week and a half, you are revisited by images of the scenes that you've read about in his books, and they just won't leave you alone. It's like being prodded by an annoying two-year-old. Yeah. You know, they just come along and shake you and say, and what happens about that? And why do you think that happened? Yeah. And I just find his writing style fascinating. So when I saw this, I thought, my goodness, mate, that's definitely got, got to go on my to-be-read pile. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, what I like about Alexander McCall Smith is he's a very comfortable pair of hands to be in. Yes. Yeah, definitely. You can can feel safe, can't you? Yeah. And you you know what you're going to get, don't you? Yeah. You you know, you're never going to be disappointed with a McCall Smith um, because he is, he just is what he, and he's very unique in his writing style, I think. Um, And as long as you are not looking for the, you know, the hurtling through a plot and being wrung out by the yeah. end of it, feel physically exhausted. Actually, there's a lot of layers in his writing that you just don't notice. He sort of sneaks them in under the radar. Yes, it, it's quite complex writing, but at the same time, it's almost an anti-thriller. 
Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way of putting it. He writes anti-thrillers, yeah, yeah. without a doubt. Because it's just, it's just really leisurely. Yes, it is. That's that's a great phrase. Yeah. Right. Well, that concludes this week's shelf indulgence. Now, next week we will be reading the same thing as each other because we are going to be discovering uh, notes on an execution. Notes on an execution, yes. Um, a book which partly, and I, and I know one shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but it does have a really cute fox on the front cover. And that, that was what initially grabbed me. So, notes on an execution. Looking forward to delving into that one with you next week, Wendy. Yes, I'm looking forward to that as well. So, ladies and gents, until next week, good reading. Good reading, everybody. This show is part of Microbrew Radio, Burton on Trent's community radio station. You can hear this and plenty of other shows over on microbrewradio.com. Find our app on the iOS or Android stores, or just say Alexa, play Microbrew Radio. And if you like what you hear, please let us know on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Thanks.